This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, Brian. Hi, Katie. Ah, Brian, that song is for you because it's a wonderful day here at the pod because the midterm elections are right around the corner on Tuesday, November 6th, and it's all about the midterms today on our podcast, Brian. And I couldn't be more excited. I'm like a kid in a candy store, Katie. (laughs) Most polls, as you know, are favoring Democrats to take control of the House, and the Republicans will likely keep control of the Senate. But then again, after 2016, who really knows, right? (laughs) Nobody. Well, if that does happen, Katie, if the projections are right, it would really change the balance of power in this country. And on the off chance that the Democrats take the House and the Senate, well, things will look a lot different for President Trump and for American politics. We've been hearing so much about the midterms in the news these days. It's sometimes hard to cut through the opinions and memes and downright vitriol to actually understand what's happening in all these races. So today, we've invited Claire Malone, a senior political writer at 538, to give us a picture of where all these races stand and which ones we should pay attention to on Tuesday, and also to give us uh, her view on the big picture, Brian. Kind of what are the stakes of this election? And then we're going to talk to a wonderful author, Michael Lewis. He has a new book out called The Fifth Risk, which is actually very relevant to the election next week. Michael Lewis, of course, wrote The Big Short. He wrote Moneyball. And now for The Fifth Risk, he spent months talking to former and current employees of the federal government. And he believes that the Trump administration is wreaking havoc from within. In his view, either political hacks are in charge or appointees more concerned about self-interest than the public interests. We've got a lot to cover today, so... Oh, wait a second, Brian. Are you hearing that, or is it just in my head? It's just in your head. No, (laughs) I'm actually hearing that. (laughs) That's right. It's our new theme music. We've given our show sound a bit of a facelift. No funny remarks here, by the way. Well, we should say to the tabloid reporters, that's the only facelift that's happened around here. (laughs) But um, um, And we want to say a big thank you to Jared Arnold, who composed the new music for us. Yeah, I really like it. It's uh, it's sounding it's sounding kind of groovy. Uh, what do you think, Katie? <laughs> well, I try to avoid using the word groovy. I haven't used that since like 1968, but I would give it a 98 for dancing. Anyway, enough <laughs> about our new music. Let's get to our conversation with Claire Malone from 538. We began by asking her what's really at stake in next week's elections. For people who aren't like us, who haven't been glued to their seats, paying attention to every (laughs) poll. Healthy people. (laughs) Yeah, normal people, in other words. What is at stake for these elections? 
Well, uh, midterm elections are pretty much always a reaction to the party who's in power. And the Republicans have a lot of control over the government. So they have the White House, they have the House of Representatives, and they have the Senate. And I think, as is probably no surprise to anyone in America, um, we're in a highly polarized partisan period of American life. And we have a president who has uh, played into that quite a bit. And so um, I think when we talk about the stakes of this election, we are talking about uh, if we're getting nitty-gritty, you know, the possibility that, you know, if Democrats theoretically retained control of both houses of Congress, they could potentially impeach the president or, you know, try to remove him from office. So that's, I think, the if you're going for the 30,000-foot-up view of things, that's what's at stake. We're talking about all House seats, 33 Senate seats, 36 governorships, state legislatures— Basically, a lot of a lot, a lot spots. Of, yes. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up state legislatures, and there's also attorney general's races. There's a lot of state-level seats that are at play here that we don't talk as much about. Um, but right now, it's looking like the Democrats have a pretty good chance of taking back, back the House of Representatives. So we have a forecasting model, and we give them about, let's say, an 80% shot of taking back the House of Representatives. The Senate is kind of flipped where the Democrats have about only a 20% chance of taking the Senate. And I think you can kind of, if you want to look back two years to the split that we saw in the popular vote and the Electoral College, they're sort of mirrored in the patterns that we're seeing in the House of Representatives and the Senate. So the House of Representatives that's parallel is the popular vote, which the Democrat Hillary Clinton won by 3 million. And then you've got the Senate, which we can compare to the Electoral College. And, and it's interesting because the Senate sort of plays to Republicans' advantages in these Rural states where votes are, I guess, more effectively economically distributed. We talk about that, where people aren't clustering in certain places. Yeah, will, will you just explain that a little bit for people? Give us a quick civics lesson, yeah. <laughs> if you could, Claire, sure. on, on gerrymandering and sort of why the Senate is so different than House races. Yeah, well, I think we, we always want to start and talk about the way that Americans have self-sorted. Um, so Democrats have tended to, in the past few election cycles, past couple of decades— be in big cities or in suburban areas surrounding big cities. And the reason why Demo the, why Republicans have um, an advantage in the Electoral College and in the Senate map is that their votes are in, they're all over, even in small states. So uh, they might win a bunch of small counties in North Dakota, and that counts for a lot. A Senate seat in North Dakota is worth just as much as a Senate seat in California. And the appeal right now of Republicans seems to be being received better by people in these exurban or, con you know, rural. rural places. And that's a problem, obviously, that the Democrats are trying to kind of claw their way back on. So if you want to think about it in terms of waves, people have talked about this election potentially being a wave election for the Democrats. There are a couple of seawalls that the Republicans have built up to protect themselves from these waves. One is— just because of the way the House seats are drawn and in some cases gerrymandered to benefit one party, the Democrats have to win the House popular vote by about six points, which is like a near landslide margin, in order to win control of the House. And in the Senate, uh, it's not gerrymandered because the state borders are what they've always been, but North Dakota has two Senate seats, Wyoming has two Senate seats, et cetera, and California has two Senate seats. And so there's a there's a bit of a bias there as well. But didn't things start to change a bit even just a couple of weeks ago for the Democrats and why? Well, things have sort of as the as the last month of a campaign kind of comes in, you start to see basically partisanship kick in. Um, so on the House side of things, that that got kind of a little bit better for for Democrats, and it got a little bit worse for them in the Senate, where you saw states like Nevada, states like Tennessee, where you have a pretty centrist Democrat, Phil Bredesen, who's the former governor of Tennessee, running for a Senate seat, and he was a pretty popular guy, and that race was pretty close. But you're starting to see voters sort of kick in and say, well, I kind of like the the guy from the opposite party, but I'm going to put on my team jersey and wear it and vote for that person in election day. And that's sort of what's showing up in polls. So you are seeing a little bit of a return to what we generally expect. If it's a red state, you're probably going to think that, well, a lot of those undecided voters that were getting polled in late September, they might be returning home and saying, well, I'm going to vote for my party, even if I'm not loving what the president is doing. I wanted to ask you about early voting because someone told me over the weekend that early voting wasn't looking great in terms of turnout for Latino voters and millennials. 
is somebody just saying that to me without any <laughs> any real knowledge? Help me out here. So we have kind of a a 538 line where we we say early voting there isn't actually any real proof that it gives us a lot of information about you know, who's going to win an election, Democrat or Republican, because it doesn't, you know, all you know is the early voters, you can tell what their party registration is, but you don't know who they voted for. And a lot of times, as we saw in 2016, where a lot of Democrats voted for Trump, people cross party lines. But I do think that we are probably going to see, I mean, unfortunately, certain demographics in this country haven't been reached by the political community, the outreach community. Latinos, I think, are one that Democrats had hoped in 2016 to really turn out and say the Southwest. And even with Trump's inflammatory rhetoric, they really didn't turn out. And I think that's sort of what people are thinking might happen this year. Although I will say, in general, it is predicted to be a high turnout election on both sides, Democrat and Republican. What about millennials? Uh, it seems to me that young people are so energized, at least <laughs> from everything I see in my social media feed, which maybe I'm not getting a completely uh, clear perspective. But uh, what about those numbers? I don't think we really know. Um, and I think we kind of have to rely, this is the 538 thing, we kind of have to rely on historical trends and generally younger voters aren't a constituency that you can necessarily count on to turn out in elections. I will say, going back again, I'm not going to make any predictions because it is going to be a high turnout election. That's what's being sort of forecasted from these polls where they, you sort of pollsters ask about your enthusiasm to vote, and the enthusiasm to vote is extremely high. So perhaps we will see higher numbers of millennials voting. Are you a little gun shy because of 2016 over there at 538? No, I think, I mean, I think, <laughs> I will say, I think the one thing that is annoying to interview people from the site is that we always kind of do this thing where we'll say, well, we can't predict it. <laughs> because, but I will say that we did rethink some of the ways that we present our probabilities for people. Because that was kind of a big whiff, Claire. Well, we w are, we will say that we were the least wrong of anyone. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we should, congratulations. We should fact check. Thank you. <laughs> we should fact check that, and we should actually also explain to our listeners what these forecasts really mean. So, sure. two years ago, five thirty eight said Hillary Clinton had a seventy one percent chance to win the presidency. Now, that was notably lower than some of the others. The New York Times said eighty five percent. Huffington Post really went out there and said ninety eight percent, but. How do these models work, and how do they differ? Yeah, sure. So um, the way that the 538 model works is that we take all of the public polling that's available, and we put it together, and we weight it based on how good we think the pollster is. So better pollsters get a, a heavier weight in the model. So we take polls, and so, so that's, that's the poll component. We'll also add in whether or not they're incumbent. That helps a person if they're an incumbent and they're running. We take into account how partisan a state is. Uh, we take into account fundraising, how much a candidate has raised. We, we smush all those things together in a model. And um, what I always like to point out is 2016 was a really interesting election. Yes, we were, and all of the other models were off. And what was uh, the reason why polls were so off in the 2016 election is that, if you'll remember, Donald Trump had huge media reach. He had, you know, 100% name recognition. And he motivated a lot of people who had fallen off the voter rolls to come out and vote. And so polls missed a lot of those people. And so we did have a, a polling problem in, in 2016. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of us in 2018 who are trying to make people basically more, I guess, literate readers of polls and to know we're not pulling this out of nowhere. And we also want you to know that there is a possibility that this is wrong. This is how probabilities work. So, But it is, I think it's a learning process for, for all of us to make people better news consumers. More literally, what you meant two years ago was if you were to run this election with all the information and data we have 10 times, seven out of 10 times Hillary Clinton would win and three out of 10 times Donald Trump would win. And so it's not like you're, quote, wrong when you say 71% chance to win and she loses. It's that this was one of those events where it was more likely than not that she would win, but she actually didn't. Yeah. And that's and so this year in our model, we've tried to switch it from making the big, bold number instead of it having be, oh, it's an 80% chance, you know, we'll try to say – Oh, it's a two and six chance, or it's a three and ten chance that this person will win. Just to give people, because I think that when we talk about gambling odds, that's kind of the vernacular that we use, and so we want to try to make it clearer to people what we're saying when we do that. Let's talk about recent events, Claire, because it has been a 
insane news cycle. As you know, we had the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. We have the pipe bombs that were sent to a number of Democratic officials, philanthropist George Soros, CNN. And now, most recently, the massacre at that synagogue in Pittsburgh. How do you measure the impact those events have on voters? Yeah, I guess I'll start with Kavanaugh since it's a bit easier to parse. The Kavanaugh hearings, certainly senators who were voting on the Kavanaugh hearings, some of them in red states, those red state Democrats, had to make tough choices that I think probably, for some of them, let's say Heidi Heidkamp in North Dakota, probably endangered their their chances on the on the Senate map. Um, and she's someone who's a, a pretty moderate Democrat. You know, she's from a state that really likes Trump. And she's one of those people that's really been trying to sort of say, run a campaign that says, listen, I'm first and foremost a North Dakotan. I'm not here for Pelosi and Schumer's agenda, right, as a kind of a response to a lot of Republican tech ads that try to tie red state Democrats to unpopular figures. Um, And so Heidi Heitkamp was sort of chugging along in a re-election effort that was, you know, it's a hard state to win. And when the Kavanaugh vote came up, I think she would be open in saying it was a sort of a wrenching decision for her to have to make because on the one hand, I think she is a woman who— was not in, f- in favor of this guy who had been accused of um, of sexual assault. And on the other hand, I think she knew it was a little bit of a, you know, it was gonna it was gonna really diminish the chances that she would be able to win her race in that state. And she made the choice. She voted against Kavanaugh, and it has unleashed, you know, a string of basically attacks against her that says, listen, this this person is not who you are, uh, North Dakota. So do you all measure, for example, you know, I I spent the weekend in Virginia with my daughter, and we spent the night with a friend of mine from high school, and we were talking about the Kavanaugh hearings, and she was troubled by the way he was treated and felt, you know, sympathetic to Mm -hmm. his outrage Mm -hmm. when he testified. And I said, hey, you're one of those white suburban women (laughs) (laughs) growing up, you know, in Arlington, Virginia, and that's where we were, who is— you know, supporting perhaps Republican candidates because of what happened to Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. Do you are you able to to get that specific in terms of how you're looking at at segments of the electorate? So that doesn't go into the model per se, but you you've hit that nail on the head when you when you bring up demographics that we watch as ones that are shifting post 2016. So if we take I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a wild guess that your your friend might be college educated. She might be white, and those people, white college educated women, are kind of the new swing voters. They used to vote Republican pretty steadily, and now I think post Trump, they are maybe in the middle, like true independent voters, or they're trending Democratic. So we I think we'll be watching for women in general. And, and how they vote on election day, but college-educated white women in particular because they're a constituency that was traditionally Republican that more and more seemed to be moving over to the Democratic side of things. Well, this was a reality check for me, though, because I think that there are a lot of women who sympathized yeah. with him. And, Brian, I'm curious, in Los Angeles, you know, that hotbed of conservatism, if you've run against, <laughs> run up against— um, women who share my friend's point of view. I actually had a conversation with one woman I know who uh, wouldn't tell me what her personal views are, but said that she was convinced that other women would sympathize with Kavanaugh because we've all seen women who make false allegations to get something. And it was hard for me to imagine what Dr. Ford would get in this situation. I mean, last time I checked, she wasn't even allowed to or able to go back to her own home. But I think we've seen in the data that the Kavanaugh hearings energized a lot of Republican voters who might not have voted or and motivated some right-leaning independent voters to stick with the Republicans. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair because women— these these you know college educated white women were probably already a more activated constituency to begin with. So the perceived mistreatment of Kavanaugh, I think, yeah, that certainly has played a factor. Now we kind of have the X factor of these really terrible events of the past week, basically. And and I we're not quite sure how these are going to affect things. I mean, you know, potentially they could have an effect on Trump's approval rating and that is often a sign of how people might vote in their congressional races. But it's just, 
you know, I don't mean this to sound flip, but our model does not take into account hate crimes, you know, how that factors into American elections. And unfortunately, that's something that's happening right now. And doesn't that also, Claire, take a while to seep into the public consciousness and to be reflected in polling data? It does take a little while to seep in. So we're recording this the week before the election. I'm guessing that pollsters will be putting out polls into the field. They probably started last week after the bombings. And so we might see some some data on how people are perceiving those events vis-a-vis the election. Trump's comments uh, in the wake of the synagogue shooting were, I found them tonally odd. Um, and I'm not sure how, how people will react to that. But you're right. It does take a, a little bit of time for these things to seep in. And, um, you know, the election is a week away. So we might end up seeing some of those results, frankly, the day of. But aren't aren't politics local? I mean, do they really, is it really a direct uh, reaction to the presidency? In other words, if I live in a state, couldn't I say I don't really like Donald Trump, but I do like, you know, my senator? That happens less and less. We call it ticket splitting. Um, And because Americans are so much more partisan, we see a lot more people just voting straight down the ticket, Republican or Democratic. There is the old truism, right, that all politics is local. But I think more and more it's become nationalized in part because this was happening pre-Trump. But I do think Trump is a – he has a talent for driving news cycles. And I think that that is something that that propelled him into office and and continues to, to dominate our politics news cycle. Overwhelmingly, we've become much more like a parliamentary system where people aren't paying attention as they used to a generation ago to local factors, local candidates. They're really just voting for what team they want in charge in Washington, particularly in these House and Senate races. I want to ask you about one candidate in particular who's been perhaps the star of this cycle, Beto O'Rourke in Texas. He has just a one in five chance to win. I haven't seen a single poll with him in the lead. He's usually mid to high single digits behind. Have journalists given voters a false sense of his chances, and especially donors who've poured more than $70 million into his campaign? Yeah, so I wrote a a piece about Beto about a month ago that was a little bit premised off this, Brian, and and my lead was basically the number of times he's been compared to a Kennedy. And I think— It was a hilarious piece. (laughs) Everybody should read it, by the way. (laughs) But I think that there's something real there, which is the midterm elections are, I guess, distinctly unsexy as far as there's tons of races. There's not one one or two candidates that you can follow along with. And O'Rourke is young. He's a Democrat making a play in Texas. So there's sort of a substantive political story there. But I do think he is a telegenic person running against Ted Cruz, the Republican incumbent, who is not a particularly beloved figure even by Republicans. Lindsey Graham had a great line that, you know, you could you could shoot him on the floor of the Senate and none of his colleagues would uh, would convict the person who shot him. So he's not, it's it's a he's not a popular guy, let's say. But I think that the media has a little bit hyped up his chances perhaps to the to the regular reader or media consumer. In, because of these attractive, telegenic— well, he's kind of the it guy of the campaign. He's a, yeah, and I think what I do think is really real and something to be taken seriously about Beto O'Rourke— listen, I, I think that he probably won't win the Senate election, but he's raised huge, huge amounts of money. Barack Obama 2007 financial quarter kind of money. And uh, the comparison to a former president is on purpose because I think a lot of people say— Listen, Donald Trump is a celebrity. He was a celebrity before he was a, the president. Maybe you need someone who has that kind of ineffable star power if you want to beat Trump. I mean, you know, as much as people want to say that voters care more about policy than they do about politics and the things that seem superficial, it's not true. I think people – I think politics is a lot more pheromonic and more like like dating or tribalism than Ooh, it is like about – pheromonic. Are you referring to pheromones? <laughs> I am. Or? I am, Katie. <laughs> But I, but what I mean by that is people vote for the person that they like, the person that they think is kind of like, you know. Well, the person they want to have a beer with, right? Ex- yeah, exactly. And I think that and that— And the person I think they want to watch on, on a screen. Right, Small yes. Small or large. Or the, person, or the person for Democrats who they find inspiring. And I think that the one thing about O'Rourke's campaign is it has been a positive campaign. You know, he's a demographically a person who could perhaps— be more appealing to people outside of Texas. He's a young white man with progressive values, which which might be more palatable 
to, you know, Obama Trump voters, which is what we refer to, you know, voters who voted for President Obama, but then switched in 2016 and voted for Trump. So there's a lot to, a lot of things to think through with Beto O'Rourke. And I think he represents more than just his Senate campaign in, in Texas. Let's just run through a few more campaigns. So Brian's going to be so excited. I'm excited oh, about the first one. And this is the Senate race in, in Tennessee. And uh, Marsha Blackburn may have to shake it off. <laughs> Do you like that, you guys? That was very clever. I love that. that I just great. pulled that out of Do my, you, you know explain what? It? <laughs> well, Taylor Swift made a big difference when she finally came out of her apolitical cocoon yeah. and spoke very candidly about her feelings on Instagram, my favorite social media platform. <laughs> and she lives in Tennessee. Yeah, she so lives in Tennessee. Time, and then all these people, yes, and all these people came out and registered to vote. Yeah. So what's happening there, Claire? I mentioned Phil Bredesen, the Democratic candidate running against Marsha Blackburn, a little earlier. That's a really interesting race because Tennessee is a super red state. It's very Republican. Marsha Blackburn has been a longtime congresswoman, and she really— well, she actually goes by Congressman Marsha Blackburn. That's oh. her official title. Um, and she sort of took on the Tea Party mantle. So she's a very sort of popular, super conservative candidate. Um, and Phil Bredesen is, you know, he used to be the mayor of Nashville. He brought the Tennessee Titans in into the state. He was governor, and he was a sort of popular, moderate governor. If 1992, Bill Clinton were running in the midterms, he'd probably be something like Phil Bredesen, like a Southern moderate Democrat. You know, we've we've got it as a pretty close race for a red state, in part because of Bredesen is, is basically an incumbent. He's really well known to the state, um, and he's a popular guy. And so we're basically, it's almost like the fortis, forces of partisanship, super red, super Republican, versus the forces of, I guess, personality and all politics is local. Can Bredesen win on a all politics is local uh, platform in a state that is very, very partisan? Well, Mm -hmm. and another interesting little wrinkle in Tennessee, as red as the state is, it has never elected before a right-wing Republican to statewide office, to the Senate or for governor. I think it's a good point, yeah. Let's talk about Missouri, Claire McCaskill versus Josh Hawley. Claire McCaskill is the incumbent Democrat, and Josh Hawley is the the attorney general in that state. It's an interesting one. I mean, Claire McCaskill has had some luck that's come her way. Uh, The last time she ran, she ran against Todd Akin. And if you remember Todd Akin's name, it's because you remember he talked about legitimate rape, uh, which did not play well. Uh, and she won that election against The ultimate oxymoron. Yes, exactly. Um, And then she had a little bit of quote-unquote luck this year because uh, Missouri had a a governor scandal. Uh, Eric Greitens, who was the governor, had to resign because of a potential sexual assault that he was accused of. So Missouri has had a weird political year. Um, And so I think Claire McCaskill was doing pretty well because the Republicans in the state, frankly, weren't looking good. They weren't in a good light. But it has, it's a red state. Trump won that state. And Josh Hawley and Claire McCaskill have basically been battling it out over health care. We did a podcast in 538 last week where we talked about, you know, the number one campaign ad topic is health care. And that's what Claire McCaskill is running on in that state. And Josh Hawley is one of the attorneys general who has signed on to this make Obamacare illegal. And so he he is uh, in a bit of a, a tight spot in a state where or health care is a big issue. But a lot of Republicans, O'Brien, right? I mean, I've been reading increasingly that Republicans have co-opted the health care conversation or basically uh, presenting themselves as the candidates who are going to preserve and save health care and pre-existing con- coverage for pre-existing conditions, et cetera. And on the other hand, they want to dismantle Obamacare. So, frankly, I'm confused. Well, they're attempting to do that because healthcare has turned from a good issue for them in the last midterm four years ago to a really bad issue for them this time. Under the category of you don't know what you've got until it's gone, a lot of voters are now— I love now, when he quotes Joni Mitchell. <laughs> just pandering to Katie. <laughs> don't it always seem to go, Brian? <laughs> um So a lot of voters are concerned about the protections that they've come to enjoy under the Affordable Care Act going away. And so the Republicans are making a big effort to say, no, 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 we're for preserving uh, protections for people with pre-existing conditions. If Claire McCaskill can't win in Missouri, probably no Democrat can win for federal office, at least in this environment in Missouri, because she's run a really effective campaign 
Um, she's a very good senator. And I think if she were to lose, it would be basically just that they want a supporter of Donald Trump's in the Senate. Claire, let's talk about the governor's race in Florida between Andrew Gillum and Ron DeSantis. Andrew Gillum is doing pretty well. So, so as background, Andrew Gillum is the uh, is the Democrat. He is the black mayor of Tallahassee, um, and Ron DeSantis is a pretty right wing Republican. And they are locked in a race that is looking increasingly bad for DeSantis. I think in part because of his his pretty far right policies. Florida is a purple state. Gillum and DeSantis were both kind of surprises in their primaries. On the Democratic side, there were a lot, you know, a lot of centrists that people thought would win, and Gillum is kind of trying to run as an outsider. So I think that's appealing to a lot of people. And actually, the governor's race might have cascading effects on the Senate race because Bill Nelson is the Democratic incumbent in the Senate, and he's running against Republican Governor Rick Scott for the seat. And some people are saying, these are both older white men, some people are saying that Gillum might actually turn out Certain constituencies that wouldn't that Bill Nelson, the white older so, man, wouldn't necessarily be able to get on his own. What's interesting, immediately out of the gate, as the general election began, DeSantis got mixed up um, in racial politics, um, and arguably it was his own fault yeah. because he used the phrase "Let's not monkey up the progress that we've made in Florida with a liberal governor," and a lot of people took that to be a racial attack on Andrew Gillum, and it, it's basically not gone very smoothly for DeSantis since then. Well, Andrew was, Gillum was so effective, I think, in the debate, and that soundbite got played over and over again where he said, I'm yeah. not saying you're a racist. I'm saying racist think you're a racist. Right. Good line. Let's talk about Georgia, the race between Stacey Abrams, who would be the first black female governor in history, and Brian Kemp. Uh, there's been so much debate. I saw that President Carter spoke out about this and said that Brian Kemp, who is the Secretary of State for the state of Georgia, should step down from that role during the campaign because he controls a lot of the voting and how it's carried out. Yeah. Um, so help us understand that, Claire. Yeah. So the, the controversy in Georgia is that it has a pretty restrictive Voting law and a lot of African-American voters, th their registrations now have problems and they might not be able to vote in the election. And and what President Carter was saying is basically that Brian Kemp is not an impartial administrator of this election and that he shouldn't be able to administer it. Now, what's interesting about Georgia is, one, it's got these racial dynamics, both in the voting stuff, but also in the in the candidates themselves, with Stacey Abrams being black and Brian Kemp being a pretty far-right Republican. He's also a white, white guy. What I think is interesting about this campaign is she is trying to win a Southern state as a black woman with a kind of new proposition, which is she's saying, I am going to register and turn out a whole bunch of minorities in addition to winning the moderate swing voters, those white college-educated women, say. Like my friend. Like your friend. Um, and that's that's kind of a new proposition for the South a little bit. I mean, you saw it a little bit with Doug Jones in in Alabama in that special election. And I went and hung out with him in the spring and for a profile I did. And Jones is, you know, he's really trying to maintain ties to the black community because they turned out in huge Obama-level numbers Especially for him. black women. Yes, exactly. And in order for him to, you know, when he's when he's up for re-election again in 2020, he's going to need to have that huge turnout of those black voters. So the South, we're seeing, you know, potentially with Abrams, a bit of a new dynamic of the kind of candidate that Democrats see as winnable. Because I think that's what's different with Southern Democrats in those deep South states is often, I think, black populations have felt like they don't have a viable candidate on a state level that they want to turn out for and vote for. Um, and so I think that's what those are the that's the different dynamic that you're seeing with Stacey Abrams. When you say problems mm -hmm. with their registration or with something uh, associated with their ability to vote. Wh what do you mean by that? So Georgia's law has it that if anything on your registration card doesn't match your ID, so it could be a typo in your name or a, a number is off on your address, then it invalidates the voter registration. So if you're thinking that that has echoes to old Southern poll laws, you are, you are right. It's an incredibly restrictive law. And I believe Kemp was... Uh, you know, basically caught on tape at a fundraiser saying, I'm going to lose if if all these people vote, which I think is probably where President Carter's comments come from a bit. That's quite a quite a skewed thing for a secretary of state to say. So so Georgia certainly has a long history of restrictive voting laws, and it continues in 2018. 
Well, and restrictive voting laws could be, to go back to my metaphor from the beginning, the the kind of the third seawall against a democratic wave that Republicans have put up, that particularly in states that they've controlled for some period of time, they can shape the electorate based on who's allowed to vote and and who isn't. Um, But, you know, those two governor's races are really interesting because they go to a larger debate that's happening within the Democratic Party about where the party should go, particularly in advance of 2020. Gillum and Abrams are both considered sort of mobilization candidates. That is, they're more about exciting the base, getting large numbers of millennials, African-Americans to turn out with a more explicitly progressive agenda. And that's been kind of the way they've been covered by the media. But I would say I think there's a piece that's missing, which is that Gillum and Abrams have both also spent a lot of time and effort trying to win over white, moderate swing voters, because they both have to do that, because the Democratic base alone is not big enough to win in either of these states. And so I think it's a little bit of a kind of a misperception that they're just doing one and not the other. But anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. (laughs) Finally, Claire, if Democrats win the House, which it looks fairly likely, Mm -hmm. is that that a fair assessment? I'd say that's fair, yes. How will it change Washington I mean, you know, Washington has had basically one-party rule during the Trump administration, which means Republicans have controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. So I think if Democrats win the House, they will be going gung-ho on oversight. So, you know, looking into Trump's taxes, looking into abuse at certain agencies, the EPA jumps to mind with Scott Pruitt's uh, sort of financial mismanagement. I think there's going to be a lot more vocal oversight of what the Trump administration is doing, and and perhaps, you know, uh, investigations will be open. So I think that's one thing. I mean, I I think that Nancy Pelosi, if she were sitting here at this table, would say, we do not want to impeach the president. And this goes to, you know, Brian's 2020 point about alienating voters. I think people remember how divisive the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton were. I think people feel impeachment would almost be a bridge too far. There will certainly be Democrats who will be calling to uh, bring articles of impeachment against President Trump, but uh, I'm not sure that the Democratic leadership wants to go that far and alienate a bunch of people that they need to win over in 2020. Also, the Senate has to convict, right? I the mean, Senate they, has to convict, yeah. I mean, So, the, so isn't it sort of just um, kind of— A PR stunt? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, All I think of it depends. It's a, it's None a ba- of the satisfaction. But it's a, it's a, ba- it's a, it's a base. Ra- I think it's a base rallying effort pre twenty twenty. That would be the argument for for uh, bringing up impeachment. And I think the counter argument, which again Pelosi vouches for, is listen, we can't do this right now. We need to win. Yes, we need to win the base, but we also need to win Obama Trump voters in the Midwest. Claire Malone from 538. Claire, thanks so much. This was so much fun. I I haven't seen Brian this happy in in months, honestly. Oh, my God. This was very big for me. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was very fun from my end, too. Before we take a break, a quick announcement. This week is our pre-midterms show. So naturally, next week will be our post-midterms show. Gosh, Brian, I don't know what you're going to do with yourself. As part of that show, by the way, (laughs) we want you, our listeners, to call in and tell us what you think. We really want to know what's on your mind, what questions you have about what it all means. So if you'd like to talk with Katie or me, which is hard to believe, but mostly (laughs) if you'd like to talk to Katie, call 929-224-4637. Leave a voicemail anytime between now and Wednesday morning, and we'll select a few of you to be on next week's show. In your voicemail, make sure to tell us where you're from, why you're calling, and your phone number so that we can call you back. We can't wait to hear from you. Again, that number is 929-224-4637. And we'll be back with Michael Lewis to talk about the decay of the federal government. Yippee! That's right after this. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 
24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, before we talk with Michael Lewis, we have an important message for you. And that message is... It's fun when everybody V-O-T-E's. <laughs> That's my new voting song, Brian. Yeah, Katie, I think what you're saying is it's really important that everybody votes. And that they sing along with me. Research shows that the majority of young people still are not sure whether they'll vote. Can you believe that? What is wrong with you people? Brian, does that mean you're not sure yet? Well, I don't think I'm still considered a young person anymore, sadly. Anyway, if I am, I'm in the minority because I am already 100% positive that I'm going to vote, and I even have a plan to do so. And how self-confident do I sound? You sound very confident, and I am as well. I plan to vote, but I get it. Some of you young people don't know where to vote. You're not sure what's on the ballot. You don't want to vote the wrong way. Or maybe you just think your vote doesn't matter. Well, surprise, surprise, we're here to tell you it does matter. Look at 2000. Look at 2016. One vote per precinct can make all the difference. And lucky for all of us, our friends at Crooked Media have launched Vote Save America, a step-by-step guide to answer all of your questions. On votesaveamerica.com, you can check if you're registered and register if you're not. You can see what the rules are in your state about registration deadlines and voter ID. You can learn more about candidates and close races. And you can look at a ballot guide that explains what is on your specific ballot in plain English. So visit votesaveamerica.com and remember to vote on November 6th. We turn now to Michael Lewis. He's written bestsellers like The Blind Side, The Big Short, and Moneyball, all of which were adapted for the big screen, by the way. Michael has a knack for taking a topic that seems boring or complicated, like statistics and baseball, for example, and making it very exciting and relevant. And that's exactly what he's done in his latest book, which is called The Fifth Risk. The new book tackles the decay of the federal government under the Trump administration. So we'll talk with Michael about why this could be really, really dangerous for the world, for our country, and how it could be stopped. Michael Lewis, welcome to the podcast. We're thrilled to have you here. Pleasure to be here. I know that your book tries to pull back the curtain and really show people what the impact of two years of the Trump administration has had on the federal government. And you really talk about the importance of the transition from the very beginning as there's a transition from one administration to another. So tell us why this period of time is so critical. Well, the, the United States government, unlike most governments in the world, has a layer of leadership that's politically import, appointed. 4,000 or so people who actually run the place are appointed by the president. And what you have after a presidential election, assuming that the incumbent doesn't win, is someone's leaving with their 4,000 people who've been running the place for a while. And someone's coming in with their 4,000 people, many of whom have never been there before. There's this transfer of knowledge that is absolutely critical, and it has nothing to do with 
political ideology. It's a sort of how-to. So you go into the Department of Energy, and they say, we manage the nuclear arsenal. Here's how you test atomic weapons without actually blowing one up. Pretty important stuff. In fact, you can think of the federal government as like this huge portfolio of risks that are being managed, and, and many of which we don't even really think about. And the idea is that, you know, before the election, well before the election, the candidates of both major parties have hundreds of people waiting to rush in the day after the election because you really only have from from that day until the inauguration. And then by law, the people who've left are not allowed to get in touch with the people who are there. They can be solicited. And the thing that interested me in this story in the first place, because I did not have a native interest in the Department of Agriculture, you know, I mean, it didn't occur to me that would be material, was that the Obama administration, partly because there was a law requiring them to do it, but partly because Bush had handed the government off so well to Obama, had gone to great lengths to create essentially the best course ever created in how the government works. Thousand people across the government for the better part of the year putting together briefings. So if you got made Secretary of the Interior, you would be briefed by people who really understood how the Interior Department worked and you'd be on, hit the ground running. They were expecting the day after the election for hundreds of people to come in. So let's let's back up one day before that, those meetings uh, to election night, and you tell this really incredible story about Mike Pence and his wife, which is really indicative of how the Trump people felt about their chances of winning. And may explain the chaos of the transition. No, so this is absolutely right. The key to the whole thing is they, just, they weren't running to win. They didn't think they were going to win. Bannon would take exception to this. Bannon may have actually in his heart of hearts believed it, but most everybody involved with it thought, they, including Trump, was not prepared to win. So they had not written an acceptance speech. They had written a concession speech. That explains why a lot of people are willing to go along for the ride and how they go along for the ride because they aren't thinking this man is going to actually run the federal government. They're thinking he's building a brand, I think is what they were thinking. And I'm I'm building my brand, being associated with it for some period of time. I'm not actually preparing to govern the country. And the Mike Pence story was, I mean, I, Karen Pence, Mike's wife, uh, Mike w- apparently leaned over to kiss her when Pennsylvania was called for Trump and it was clear Trump was going to be president. And, and, and she says, pushes him away and says, you got what you wanted, Mike, leave me alone. And I said, Ouch. Yeah, no, I don't. She was, the, the people in the room, I, I, some of them had really mixed feelings about winning. And Trump himself had been playing the game. It's like he really is a guy whose bluff is called. He had not taken seriously the idea he had to take over this operation. But Chris Christie had been appointed head of the transition. And what happened right after election night to him? So what you really need to know is what happened before, because Christie had seen in the newspaper that they were required to prepare for the transition and that there were federal resources available to do it. And he called Trump and said, let me do it. Because he said, I'm not going to be president, but the next best thing is kind of planning to be president. And... This isn't my view. This is a view of just independent referees. Like the, Christie did a superb job. He got lots of really qualified people ready to go into the agencies and had also vetted a lot of the people who might have be plausible candidates for the top jobs in the government. So they'd vetted out Mike Flynn, for example. And it's all ready to go. In spite of Donald Trump's actual hostility to the whole operation because they were he thought they were spending his money. And then, and that he wasn't going to win. And he wasn't going to win, right. So why bother, right? And Bannon said to Trump, well, if you fire the transition, how's that going to look on Morning Joe? It's going to look like you're giving up already. And so he said, all right, just don't spend very much money. But ultimately, he did fire Chris Christie. So the day after the election, they fire him. So it was only for show. They built this great operation. It turns out only for show that the minute they said, oh, we're going to do this, Trump got rid of him. And the natural next question is, Why? Uh, and Christie would tell you that it's because he put Jared Kushner's father in jail uh, back when he was a prosecutor for tax Do you tax think run. that's true? I think that didn't help. Jared clearly wanted Christie gone, but you had to have Trump's approval of that. And why would Trump, if I were Donald Trump, I would have somewhere deep in my soul a sense that I don't really know how this thing works that I'm going to be taking over. And it would be nice to have all these people who kind of know the thing. And they can – I don't have to pay attention to it then, right? It will all just kind of run. 
I think he had positive reasons for wanting chaos. I think that there were friends of his, people who were, and people who had connections to Russia, like Mike Flynn, who he wanted to be able to put in important positions. I think he functions better. I think he thinks he functioned better if is not things are not orderly. So I think he was just kind of attracted to like let let the chips fall where they may. I'll take care of all this. I'll decide who's going to be in the cabinet, mainly ca- by casting them by appearance. And it wasn't sufficient that Jared Kushner wanted Christie out. Trump also had to say, "I'm I want this whole thing gone." You're saying that he wanted Mike Flynn in there because of his connections with Russia. I can't imagine why else. Like, why else go to that trouble? Christie's operation had said Mike Flynn should not be national security advisor. He's got shadowy problems we, you don't want to know about, but just don't put him in any p- important position. The Trumps are insistent that Mike Flynn be in and to the point where they want to get rid of the entire transition operation, which would prevent it from happening. Why else? I mean, it's it's hard. To, it, it just it seems a pl- I don't know this for a fact, but it seems a plausible explanation. And to what end? You know, I wonder about this. I, that I think that we will find out eventually when we untangle Donald Trump's finances and his relationship to the Russians. What he's thinking in the back of his lizard brain is, if this proceeds normally, and the State Department is run normally, for example, it'd be harder to cloud my relations with these people. People are going to know things, find out things, people who aren't allies. Um, I want allies. I want loyalists around this issue because loyalists will keep their trap shut, if I had to bet. But again, I don't know that. But never mind the motive for a second. Just the fact of it is astonishing. You know, in a normal society that understood the value of its government, there'd have been a revolt. We're not going to show up for the briefings. It's crazy. I mean, three months ago, when I was finishing, I was still getting briefings from very important people in the government that had never been given because no one had ever showed up to hear it. And it's just a loss of knowledge. Who would run anything that way? It's just, there's no decent argument for not learning about the thing you need to run. Which leads perfectly to the title of the book, The Fifth Risk. Can you go through the first four risks and then we'll talk about the fifth one? Well, there's something that's not in the book that informed the the title. When I first started, I was talking to people in the White House, and they had planned a exercise, which was going to happen between the outgoing Obama cabinet and the incoming Trump cabinet. They would scheme out what happens if several terrible things happen. One was a pandemic. Another was a, a terrorist attack inside the United States with a nuclear weapon. Uh, another was a hurricane that surprised some part of the country. The fourth was a an earthquake in the Pacific Northwest. And I said, what's the fifth? They said, we hadn't thought about the fifth. And I realized that what I was writing about at that moment was the stuff that nobody's thinking about because there's so much of it within the federal government. It's sort of like the, the risk we're not attending to sufficiently. This then happens again when I go into the energy department and I'm sitting down with a guy who'd never given his briefing, the chief risk officer. And he worked in the Obama administration. He worked in the Obama administration. He was brought in by Ernie Moniz, MIT physicist who had run the energy department. His name is John McWilliams. And John said, he said, actually, I came up with a list of 142 basically existential risks. I said, don't have time. Pretend I'm like a Trump guy who's bored. Give me five. And he says... I think in no particular order, but he says, one, uh, that a nuclear weapon will go off when it's not supposed to. I think he said then the Iran, the, that the Iran deal would come unraveled, that the next administration would not appreciate how important it was and how good a deal it was because they wouldn't bother to listen to the physicists who would explain to them that now Iran cannot build a nuclear bomb. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, North Korea was, the, I think, the third... The failure of the nation's electrical grid, which is they monitor, and you think, oh, well, that's just the lights go out. That's a disaster. People die. And then we get the fifth. And actually, he said, Let me, I had to think a little bit. And I thought, well, have we ever patterned? When we get to five, we got to think a little bit. And then he finally said, very kind of innocuously, program management. And what he meant by that, which sounds incredibly tedious, and in some ways it is incredibly tedious, but what he means by that is that the government is managing really dangerous situations that are very long-term situations. And the example I plucked out of the Department of Energy to use to illustrate the point in the book was uh, the nuclear waste cleanup in Hanford, Washington. Eastern Washington 
is where the plutonium was created for the atom bombs that were dropped on Japan. In the course of creating it, they were in such a rush, they didn't pay attention to what they were doing with the waste materials. Hundreds of millions of gallons filled with, with stuff you don't want to touch. Uh, got, or be anywhere near. Or be anywhere near. I mean, anybody, a lot of people who've worked at this site have died of cancer. Uh, but just poured into the, into the soil. And there's this plume of it moving through the earth towards the Columbia River. And it's being managed by the Department of Energy. They're spending $3 billion a year to clean this up. If we just don't do that right, and the stuff gets to the Columbia River, it's catastrophic for the Pacific Northwest. He said that was just one example. That's professional technical management that's got to be there, people who know about things. And that's what the Trump people didn't bring in. They didn't bring anybody who knew about anything. It sounds like you really outline a lot of disasters waiting to happen, and not just at the Department of Energy, but in other very, uh, frankly, unsexy agencies, like yes. the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Commerce. Right. So the whole you know, point was to take things that nobody's paying attention to. Which is kind of your area of expertise. I feel like you always take these sort of arcane, dry subjects, and you kind of make them fun and entertaining. You have to hear three or four times that you should read the book before you actually think, I better read the book. <laughs> yeah. Because really, do I want to read a book about the Department of Agriculture? But talk about the Department of Agriculture and Commerce. And I think a lot of listeners— Michael will be surprised to hear what they have purview over and how important they are. They're all misnamed, these departments. Right? I mean, they, we've gotten so detached from our government. That, so the reason I picked the ones I picked was I just wanted to dramatize how little we all know about what our government does. But the Department of Agriculture, it does subsidize farming. It was created by Lincoln during the middle of the Civil War. Uh, with the explicit mission to turn agriculture into a science. So farming could be made more efficient. So we'd need fewer farmers. So those people could go the, then go do other things and the economy would grow. The enterprise has been spectacularly successful. Farmers used to feed a few people. Now they feed a, each feeds a few hundred people and we need many fewer farmers. It has now expanded into a science project that uh, that dis distributes about $3 billion a year in grants to researchers. Almost all of them, one way or another, related to how we secure the food supply uh, in the face of climate change. Um, and food safety, by the way. I just want to interject food and safety. And food safety, yeah. You, you know, how do we make sure that the, our chicken doesn't poison us? Among other things, the Department of Agriculture inspects the 9 billion birds a year that are killed in America so we can eat them. Not to mention cows and Not, all kinds of other things, All kinds right? of other things. Now, if you're hiring someone to pass out $3 billion a year in grants, to, you would want to probably want to hire someone who knew about agricultural research. And that's usually who occupies the job, a scientist, someone who's done their own research, is respected in the field. Uh, and that's who was there when Trump came in and Trump nominated to replace her uh, a right-wing talk show radio host from Iowa who supported him, who has no science background whatsoever. Uh, I mean, this, this kind of stuff, it's like, like I, I don't know about agricultural science, but I stayed in a Holiday Inn Express. It, it's like happened across <laughs> the government. Uh, so that's $3 billion a year. I think the Agriculture Department budget is close to $200 billion. And much of that, if you follow just the money, it's feeding people. It's feeding Poor kids, it's feeding old people, it's food stamps, and it's school nutrition programs. That's where the bulk of the money goes. And those programs, when you actually dig into them and talk to the people who administer them, the Trump people would love to cut them. But you're, what you're doing is you're, you're leaving kids hungry and old people hungry. I describe how ignorance is actually a tool for Trump, that if you do, remain ignorant of the, of the thing you can you can do all sorts of brutal stuff, and you can have plausible deniability. Plausible deniability. You can put if you, as long as you don't meet a kid who's going hungry, and as a result can't concentrate at school. As a result, one thing leads to another, and the life ends in tragedy. You can say, "Oh yeah, let's just cut the school lunch program." In fact, when you get into it, you find these dedicated public servants who really understand the programs and understand that, like the problem with the programs isn't fraud, which is what. Some people have you believe very little fraud, and and they work very hard to eliminate it. The problem is, if they're not as heavily used as they should be, that the people who need them don't know, have too much trouble getting access to them, and the people who really care about them 
solve those problems so on a state-by-state basis. When you don't rec- we don't acknowledge any of that. When you say, oh, just get rid of it, the government is too big, what you're doing is just ignoring the problem altogether. Well, and when you say that government workers are these incompetent bureaucrats who don't know what they're doing, you sort of support the idea of just cutting off all these programs, no matter how valuable they are. I think that's absolutely right. And what I found in talking to these people, bureaucrats, civil servants, public servants, was that they were, ex- as a rule, extraordinarily dedicated, hardworking, mission-driven people operating in a hugely dysfunctional system. And the fact that system is dysfunctional is our fault, not theirs. It's because we've resisted any kind of decent reforms of government. If you want to make the argument that our society is disintegrating and in decay, you might start by looking at what we've done with the government. Five times as many people in the federal workforce over the age of 60 than under the age of 30. Wow. $90 billion spent on IT in the federal government. $70 billion is spent just on these ancient, just maintaining these ancient decrepit systems from the 60s. It's, it's a system that's almost built at this point to fail. And in spite of that, people want to come in and do stuff and sometimes do. Did President Obama, when he was in charge, do anything to try to fix these problems you've identified? Not enough. The Bush administration had been beginning to engage with how you reform the government. And the Obama administration has kind of started over the world's authority on this is Max Steyer, who runs something called the Partnership for Public Service, which is this extraordinary nonprofit started by one guy who basically said, I'm going to try to fix the government. I'm going to start by trying to get young, talented people into the government. The only way I can do that is if I fix this thing. He's managed to get the laws passed that require people to prepare for the transition. And he's got a lot of ideas about ways you might reform the place so it is more agile, responsible, responsive and and just works better. Uh, and he would tell you that Obama was disappointing to him this way. But nothing like Trump. I mean, really responsible in the kind of people he put into the government, for example, uh, that, that he said, you've never seen anything like Trump. We're two years into the Trump administration. Do you see it getting any better? And if the Democrats, Michael, take the House Will they have any control over the current state of disarray? So the answer is no and no. Trump is symptom, not just cause here. We don't elect someone who is so ignorant and negligent unless we have got to the point where we so misvalue and misunderstand the thing he's running. If the society understood the government, if we all had a good civics lesson, we'd all say that person shouldn't be running that because that's going to be a catastrophe because that that enterprise, the government, is really important. The narrative needs to change first. I mean, that's why I wrote the book. I mean, if they just try to start to change the narrative. So people stop seeing the government as the problem and start seeing it as a tool, as a solution. Let's good all, luck with that, yeah, by the way. But no, you know, it's if this society is going to survive, that's got to happen. So it's a big deal. I think it actually could happen. But you can change narratives. You know this. You've told stories. But, yeah, we have to stop undermining this institution. And and start trying to be constructive about it. And understanding it. And meanwhile, if the Democrats take the House, they don't really have any power to do this, do they? If Trump is removed, that would help. But uh, it wouldn't solve the core problems. What's really needed is a political leader probably will come out of the Democratic Party, but could easily come out of the Republican Party, who can make the positive case for government, which is with caveats, which we need to change this thing. We have a 1940s automobile on a 21st century highway. Someone who can sell that case, uh, I think, could get elected selling that case. They just have to be good at it. And this is something that Obama, President Obama, may try to sell because he's optioned the book correct, to come up with a series for Netflix to help people better understand the government. Yes. It's just as a civics lesson. That's right. And I did three departments because it would be the work of many lifetimes to do the whole government. But you could do this in a fun way across the entire government. Well, Michael Lewis, the book is called The Fifth Risk. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about it. It's always great to see you. Thanks for having me. So that's all for today. And a reminder one more time, please vote on Tuesday, November 6th in the midterm elections. It is really important. 
And on next week's show, we'll be taking your calls and making sense of all the election results. Or at least trying to. (laughs) Emma Morgenstern is our producer. Nora Ritchie is the associate producer. And Jared O'Connell is our audio engineer who makes every show sound like a dream. Ryan Connor is our audio engineer here in L.A. I'd also like to shout from the rooftops about my team at Katie Couric Media, my assistant Beth DeMoz, and Julia Lewis, my social media mix. And a saucy one at that. Jared Arnold wrote our new theme music. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at GoldsmithB. And you can follow Katie on Twitter, Facebook, and especially Instagram (laughs) under Katie Couric. Those Instagram stories are really something to follow. (laughs) I notice you do, Brian, because I see your name all the time. So don't mock me too much. (laughs) One more (laughs) reminder. If you want to call in to ask us a question or share your thoughts about the midterms, you can reach us at 929-224-4637. Just leave a voicemail with your name, where you're calling from, and what you'd like to tell us, or leave us a message about something other than the midterms, or you can always email us at comments at currentpodcast.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. We really appreciate your support, and we'll talk to you next week. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.